Welcome to The Power of Data, the podcast by Dun & Bradstreet. Data is everywhere, and there is more created every second of every day. Join us to hear from leaders unlocking the value of data. Welcome back to The Power of Data podcast. You're joined today by me, Sam, and Danny McCoy, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Business and Employers Confederation. Welcome, Danny. Thank you very much, Sam. It's great to have you today. And I'm particularly excited about this, not just because St. Patrick's Day is upon us, which is one of my favorite days of the year, but namely because of what we're going to talk about today. You've got an incredibly strong background in in economics, and you've held multiple economist positions before joining IBEC, which is the contraction of the Irish Business and Employers Confederation, and then becoming CEO. Could you give our, our listeners just a brief rundown of your career to date and how you got all the way to the top of Ibex. Yeah, so I'm Irish and from the west of Ireland. And initially, my interest was in business, even though I wouldn't know what business was at that point. So I did my primary degree in, in commerce. But I quickly found that I enjoyed the economics of it. So I moved to University College Dublin to do economics. And then coincidentally, when I was quite young, I was only 21, I got a lectureship at Dublin City University. That kind of set me on my way on on an academic move. And from there, I went to the Economic and Social Research Institute in Dublin around the time of the Earth Summit back in 1992. So I was interested in the application of economics to environmental issues and sustainable development. That's all of 30 years ago. And then from there, environmental economics, I ended up getting a lectureship at University College London, then at Oxford, before returning to Ireland in the mid-1990s to become a central banker in the run-up to Monetary Union. That was an interesting time. And then I returned to the ESRI as a macroeconomic forecaster. Short-term economic forecasting would have led to the European Commission's short-term forecasting network of institutes like London's National Institute for Economic and Social Research, among others. And then in uh, 2005, I moved to IBEC, the business representative organization, probably uh, best described as the Confederation of British Industry Equivalent. And it was really also an employer's organization as well as a business organization. So a trade union of employers dealing with trade union of employees, something that's coming back into vogue again, which I'll happily talk about later on. And then I became the chief executive of IBEC in 2009, which is probably useful to have the kind of linga franca to be able to talk to the IMF, because as you know, with the financial crisis, Ireland ended up in the hands of the Troika, as it was called, the IMF, European Central Bank and European Commission with the bank bailout. But the Irish economy has been remarkable in the last 10 years to the point where in GDP terms, it's grown by over 100% in uh, six years. So we're dealing with a kind of a phenomenon of a frontier economy where the new oil, the new resources, the intellectual property embedded in corporate balance sheets, which have moved to Ireland in a really significant way. Fantastic. Thank you, Danny. And maybe let's just talk a little bit about what IBEC does. It's Ireland's largest lobby and business representative group. So yeah, it'd be useful to hear a little bit more about the purpose, the mission, and ultimately, particularly at this time in our economic cycle, how are you supporting businesses and putting their interests first? Yeah, so I, I've got the pleasure of leading IBEC, which is a business itself. And maybe just to talk about the business itself, we've 247 employees in seven locations, uh, six of them on the island of Ireland, headquartered in Dublin. But also we've got an office in Brussels. But we've joined ventures, particularly in the States, with some other representative organizations. We do quite a lot of work with the OECD in Paris and the International Labour Organization in in Geneva. 
The business itself is about a 32 million euro turnover business, and it's been quite profitable in recent years. We've invariably been running a 10% EBIT, so earning about 3 million profit. So having had accumulated a debt prior to the financial crisis, um, we're, we're all clear again. So that, that's IBEC the business. is an interesting business to run because we're by far the largest lobbying organization in Ireland. But of our type, we'll be the third biggest in Europe because we agglomerate a lot of the business that happened there. So we, we own 38 brands. So we'd have things like Biopharma Ireland, MedTech Ireland, Food Drink Ireland, Retail Ireland, etc. And so you get to see a lot of those businesses and a lot of those entities have become global forces because the Republic of Ireland has become quite a global hub. So it's been really exciting to be involved with those foreign direct investors. But we also then have our domestic businesses who have been going through the same kind of travails during COVID of lockdown, the retailers, the hospitality, the pubs, the restaurants. So we're getting to see that kind of what we would call a K-shaped recovery. The upward arm is we're heavily exposed to pharma companies, to tech companies, and, and they've just had a really boom of a COVID. And then in contrast, you've got your domestic mom and pop type businesses who are really suffering from restrictions. That means they can't trade. So our, our role is really to give expression, to try to lobby on their behalf, but also to give voice to their business models. So it's been a real dichotomy in the last year, uh, a really strong story. Overall, Ireland is the only country in the EU to have recorded a growth rate in 2020. So the numbers came in last week from the statistical office. GDP growth was in the order of about 3% plus 3% volume growth. That hit the wow. story of the K-shape. You know, The domestic companies were down around 8 or 9% on average. But you know, even within that, on those sectors that have suffered during COVID, you go from the wild numbers of you know minus 60s in the aviation to you know near 80 percent for anything that's got to do with congregated event types situations but then when you come back even some domestic businesses would have had a growth year because while retail just take that as an example there's 12 categories of retail by european definitions only about three of them have actually were down last year they're the very obvious ones like restaurants pubs department stores but then, you know, supermarkets are up and they got to do with electrical equipment and they got to do with lifestyle and they got to do with DIY. They, they were recording growth rates of 50, 60 percent growth rates because you've got a population who's restricted, but also one that's actually still getting high incomes. I think that's one of the real distinctions between the UK and the Republic, actually, in the last number of years is that the business model in Ireland has been very cash generative. In truth, that's because of the uncertainty created by the breakup potential of the United Kingdom. And that's not even Brexit. This goes back to 2014 and the Scottish independence vote. Created uncertainty to investors who were trying to figure out you know, where to place their bets with the OECD work on corporate tax. That initiated around 2012. And so for those two years, 12, 13 into 14, the tournament was really between the UK and Ireland as to where these companies, which were, you know, invariably leaving the Caribbean islands where they had their headquarters, couldn't show substance there with this new base erosion profit shifting, as it's called from the OECD. You must show substance where you've got your tax strategy. So instead of going back to the United States, a lot of these companies, really big brand names, wanted to come to a jurisdiction like the EU. But they wanted the land in the EU in, in somewhere that was compatible, particularly common law legal system, Anglo-Saxon view of the world. And so you really had two choices. I know Malta provides an opportunity as well, but fundamentally it was Ireland or Britain. 
And the act of 2014 meant that Ireland actually won really big in 2015. And we saw the corporate balance sheets that moved into Ireland was a stock change of about 60%. And the PL extraction from that, that kind of flow concept, gets caught as GDP. We saw our GDP rise by 36% in a single year. And so people looked around and said, you know, no normal economy can grow by one third in a single year. And the answer to that is correct. No normal economy can. But an economy that is experiencing a resource boom, like an oil find or some other such, can do. And so in this case, the Irish version was an intangible asset, the intangible asset being that intellectual property embedded in corporate Mm -hmm. balance sheets. And so with our stable corporate tax environment, progressive society, the stability that the peace process actually on the island had given Ireland as well over the last number of years, these were all conditions that really Ireland got lucky, but we got lucky by practicing for a long time to be, you know, to be ready because the history of Ireland over the last century was one of not being able to even keep our population. Hence the Aspera and the St. Patrick's Day phenomenon you talked about at the start, Sam. What a fascinating set of events, macro events over the last decade that have resulted in Ireland's positive economic results for 2020, and positive being a somewhat relative word. But when it comes to the SME community, many SMEs are in dire straits, finding times really, really difficult. And I'd love to know from your perspective, what are some of the challenges these SMEs are facing and and how is the Irish public sector dealing with it? What support is being put in place? Yeah, so again, entering into the kind of the macro before getting specific access to finance that the state's providing is the backdrop I gave there meant that Ireland's context in dealing with the pandemic was quite different to other nations in that it was on the crest of a boom. And then, as I said at the start, COVID itself actually enhanced some of those sectors we were overexposed to, as in biopharma, tech. So the resources that were generated by those sectors meant that there was quite a lot of liquidity during 2020 for the state to be able to recycle back into the private sector. But that phenomenon I talked about, which was building over six years, also meant that by the time the crisis happened, the pandemic crisis happened, quite a lot of SMEs were debt-free. So, you know, up to 50% of SMEs have no borrowings in the Irish context. And so while the state has rolled out, like in other jurisdictions, debt-based solutions offering loans, the take-up has been incredibly low, despite the fact that some of these businesses are shut down and and not capable of being cash generative. They haven't opted to take up some of the schemes that the government have been putting in place. And so sometimes you see, just this week, I saw a kind of a, a link to say that the supports from government to Irish business will be one of the lower ones. And I think in that, the fact that the take-up of the loan options in Ireland has been probably disproportionately lower than other jurisdictions is reflective of it. To contrast it with the UK, I suppose the main intervention that's helped businesses and particularly SMEs in the pandemic crisis have been two schemes. And in fact, two that are alternative to the UK's use of the furlough scheme. You know, the concept of furlough is that you still remain an employee of the business, but you're at home and not working effectively. And the payment goes through that mechanism. The two things that had similarities, but were different to that. One was what we called a temporary wage subsidy scheme was you stayed with your employer, but you actually could work. So if you're in a service-based activity on web, on Zoom or whatever, so you're working and your wages are being subvented, subsidized by the state, a temporary wage subsidy scheme. Or alternatively, 
you could lay off your workers onto a special welfare payment called the Pandemic Unemployment Scheme. And just to contrast this, because I was centrally involved in it with the government, because we've got a social dialogue structure of trade unions, employers and government work together, is that payment was €350 a week, no questions asked, because it was an emergency. Nobody thought it was going to last as long as it has, but that scheme is still in place. And so the state's been capable of sustaining that level of subvention for what's now heading for a year. And if you contrast that to the unemployment benefit that, you know, in Northern Ireland as part of the UK, it's 350, it's a 3.5x differential. We also then, as a result of that, if you look at who's unemployed when we have the restrictions, the unemployment rate in Ireland is now about 25%. Now, that's an artificial number because of the schemes we're using or the way we're doing it, that we actually create unemployment by this generous welfare payment. But when we open up, as we did before Christmas, those sectors like construction and retail and hospitality, which are very labor intensive, they all come flooding back into work and the unemployment rate you know, shoots back down again to where its natural rate at the moment is probably about 10%. So it's an exaggerated reading as a function of how we've been doing it. So Really substantial amount of funds going from the state into businesses, mainly around the employment aspect of it. Understood. And and I mean, I think that's probably largely what I expected to hear, given what's happening in in the UK and and other regions around the world. And if we turn our attention now to, to opportunity, always there's opportunity somewhere in a time of crisis. You just have to know where to look. Where, in your view, are some of the most exciting opportunities that are facing business today? And what role can data play in creating a path forward? Yeah, so data obviously is, you know, um, stating the obvious here, data is what we're talking about in terms of digitalization of our economies. But in that context, digitalization by itself is intangible. And that intangibility is where, you know, the Irish story has become supersized on the back of intangible assets. The data centers in Ireland as a location is to the point that over 30% of European data is now stored in Ireland, which makes the Irish regulator on data protection quite a significant player in the digital wars that are going on between the United States and the EU on digital services, the digital service market and so on. But your point about opportunity, so clearly there's opportunities if you go big on digital and be the host. But in truth, what we're observing as well is that the reach and the different channels in, in terms of meeting wealth is that that opportunity that digitalization has given about proximity. We're seeing that proximity to a market, particularly one that's based on services or capital, is having a peripheral location like Ireland would have had, or would have had, still has, a physical peripheral location is not a barrier as it would have been in a more tangible world where you'd be trading a product. And so Ireland never had uh, any natural resources of significance for the industrializations of the past in terms of coal. But what we see now is that we have those opportunities for creating more value added. And that's clearly the opportunities in the digitalization. But ironically, in the world that we now live in is that intangibility is also about brand, about copyrights, patents, and so on. And so one of the only features that Ireland would have had a natural advantage on is grass. Is actually, it's a great place to grow and grass. That's what makes it green. And in the past, the value-added export out of Ireland, I'm born in 1967, so I, like an anorak, looked at that particular year once and saw that the biggest export out of Ireland at that point was cattle, but live cattle. 
you know, that they would actually, and I do remember as a kid when I'd come to Dublin, you'd see them getting onto the boats, you know, cows getting walking down the street to Dublin, getting on boats to be exported. No value added at all. You know, cows eat the grass, then they get exported and all value added activities from the meat and so on we done in other jurisdictions. Now we see a lot more value added put into meat as one, but actually the value added coming from the grass itself in the dairy sector. So not exporting actually the liquid, but burning off the liquid and getting at the nutrients. So Ireland would be one of the world's largest exporters of infant formula. But in addition, with the new gym bunny phenomenon of the last decade, it is also one of the world's largest sports nutrient businesses with uh, the company Glanbia being particularly world leader there, as is other iconic companies like the Kerry Group. Well, firstly, I've, I've learned a lot about Ireland and a ton of stuff that I just didn't know, which is which is fantastic. Thank you, Danny. At the end of 2020, Ireland looked on course to have strong export growth and a growing economy, as you mentioned earlier. What were some of the factors that contributed to that strong position for Irish exports specifically? I think the build-up on the sectors that have occurred over a generation. Ireland's been very open right from the 1960s and then through the period of the joining the European Union in the 1970s. But a bit like Britain at that time, it had quite a lot of difficulty with angst between trade unions and employers and also being uncompetitive. And I think that the renaissance in Ireland actually correlates, causation might be a different issue, but the correlation is very high with the renaissance in Britain from the Thatcher era and into the 90s. And and one of the tragedies, I suppose, of Brexit is that when you look at the joint production function that has been Britain and Ireland over the last number of generations Mm -hmm. within the EU, the only places that have really significant population increases, a kind of a dynamism from being a globalized hub. In that context, Ireland ended up with sectors like tech, like biopharma, like medtech, and its own natural food and drink industry, which went for more high value added activities. It was really set fair for a pandemic as it happens, because we all know tech became so important, pharma products became so important, medical technology in the sense of ventilators, even Ireland was the largest ventilator producer globally. And so it just happened to be in the right sectors at the right time. And so that's why it booked the trend and became the only country to be able to grow through 2020. Forgive me for asking this, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Danny, if I had to ask you to give the doing business in Ireland elevator pitch, just 30 seconds on what makes Ireland a great place to do business, what does it sound like? Yeah, so I I think past performance is probably the best indicator. No other society has transformed itself on the back of a business model than Ireland by being open, by being globalised, and having an education system where there's no challenges to a natural capital labor split. Because we missed the industrial revolutions of the past, we didn't have that legacy of trying to divide the cake up before it was even baked. And so in that regard, Ireland's an incredibly business-friendly and property right protective society. And I think that's really significant when you've got something as amorphous as intellectual property, that you know you're in a, a stable, certain environment. And I think that's been the proposition probably, Sam. Ireland has remained very stable over the last 10 years in terms of its position within the EU, in terms of holding on to corporation taxes, not flip-flopping, and its industrial policy doesn't get torn up every uh, couple of years. It's consistent. 
So consistency and certainty would be those two characteristics. I love it. And spoken like a, a true economist. So thank you, Danny. To finish, I always like to think about taking a piece of advice away and, and particularly for our listeners. If you were to speak to our listeners today about a piece of advice for someone starting out in their career, what would it be? It's the same advice I'd give to any first-time parent. Everything changes. <laughs> if, you're going through, <laughs> if you're going through a good phase, it'll change. If you're going through a really bad phase, it'll change. And so, you know, be willing to write out the changes that come. Just hold your nerve, be resilient, and just deal with changes. It's, it's, it's up and down. You can't monotonically have a trend all the time. So, so that's kind of resilience and just embrace change. You know, nothing lasts forever. And so enjoy it as you're going through as much as you can. I love it. Danny, one final question. What does a pandemic St. Paddy's Day celebration entail this year? Oh, I'd love to be uh, a Zoom-free one, whatever fashion it is. I, I really wouldn't like to be looking into a screen. So I guess it's get out there, be uh, socially distant, but at least try to uh, physically see somebody and raise a glass from a distance with each other. But try not to unless you can't do it any other way. Try and avoid the screens. I think that's a good piece of advice for anyone who has Irish friends or colleagues. Make sure it's Zoom-free. And yeah, I'll certainly be raising a glass to you, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Find out more about how Dun & Bradstreet can help your business be better. Contact us at marketinguk at dnb.com. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.